Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I'm going to read from a book written by Mark Twain. Title is, Is Shakespeare Dead? And I wanted to read this after it coming to my attention during two interviews I had with Robert Frederick about the authorship of the Shakespeare Corpus by Sir Francis Bacon. And we talked uh, the first interview about that. The second one was some of the information that he left uh, or Shakespeare or Bacon left inside of the Macbeth uh, play. So <clears throat> I did two interviews with him, but this one is very dated. It has a lot of kind of flowery, or flowery language and kind of goes in, it, it kind of bounces around between satire, anecdote. It talks about Mark Twain's life in Hannibal, I think Missouri, and uh, but does go into, I think, some important information. But it definitely is some dated prose. Twain wrote it in 1909. And uh, it's fairly short, so I'm going to read it from its entirety uh, right here. Is Shakespeare Dead? From my autobiography, Mark Twain. Chapter 1. Scattered here and there through the stacks of unpublished manuscript, which constitute this formidable autobiography and diary of mine, Certain chapters will in some distant future be found which deal with claimants. Claimants historically notorious. Satan, claimant. The golden calf, claimant. The veiled prophet of Coruscant, claimant. Louis Seventeenth, claimant. William Shakespeare, claimant. Arthur Orton, claimant. Mary Baker G. Eddy, claimant. And the rest of them. Eminent claimants, successful claimants, defeated claimants, royal claimants, pleb claimants, showy claimants, shabby claimants, revered, Claimants, despised claimants, twinkle star-like here and there, and yonder through the mist of history and legend and tradition. And oh, the darling tribe are clothed in mystery and romance, and we read about them with deep interest and discuss them with loving sympathy or with rancorous resentment, according to which side we hitch ourselves to. It has always been so with the human race. There was never a claimant that couldn't get a hearing, nor one that couldn't accumulate a rapturous following, no matter how flimsy and apparently unauthentic his claim might be. Arthur Orton's claim that he was the lost Tickborne baronet came to life again was as flimsy as Miss Eddy's that she wrote Science and Health from the direct dictation of the deity. Yet in England near 40 years ago, Orton had a huge army of devotees and incorrigible adherents, many of whom remained stubbornly unconvinced after their fat god had been proven an imposter and jailed as a perjurer. And today Miss Eddy's following is not only immense, but is daily augmenting in numbers and enthusiasm. Orton had many fine and educated minds among his adherents. Miss Eddy has had the like among hers from the beginning. Her church is as well equipped in those particulars as is any other church. Claimants can always count upon a following. It doesn't matter who they are, nor what they claim, nor whether they come with documents or without. It was always so. Down out the long vanished past, across the abyss of the ages, if you listen, you can still hear the believing multitudes shouting for Perkin Warbeck and Lambert Simnel. A friend has sent me a new book from England, The Shakespeare Problem Restated, well restated and closely reasoned. And my 50 years interest in that matter, asleep for the last three years, is excited once more. It is an interest which was born of Delia Bacon's book, away back in that ancient day, 1857 or maybe 1856. About a year later, my pilot master Bixby transferred me from his own steamboat to the Pennsylvania and placed me under the orders and instructions of George Ehler, dead now these many, many years. I steered for him a good many months, 
He was the humble duty of the pilot apprentice, stood a daylight watch and spun the wheel under the severe superintendence and correction of the master. He was a prime chess player and an idolater of Shakespeare. He would play chess with anybody, even with me, and it cost his official dignity something to do that. Also, quite uninvited, he would read Shakespeare to me, not just casually, but by the hour, when it was his watch and I was steering. He read well, but not profitably for me, because he constantly injected commands into the text. That broke it all up, mixed it all up, tangled it all up, to that degree, in fact, that if we were in a risky and difficult piece of the river, an ignorant person couldn't have told sometimes which observations were Shakespeare's and which were Ehler's. For instance, quote, what man dare I dare? Approach thou, what are you laying in the leads for? What a hell of an idea. Like the rugged ease off her a little, ease her off. Rugged Russian bear, the armed rhinoceros, or there she goes. Meet her, meet her. Didn't you know she'd smell the reef if you'd crowded it like that? Here can tiger, take any shape but that, and my firm nerves. She'll be in the woods the first you know. Stop the starboard. Come ahead strong on the larboard. Back the starboard. Now then, you're all right. Come ahead on the starboard. Straighten up and go long, never tremble, or be alive again, and dare me to the desert damnation. Can't you keep away from that greasy water? Pull her down, snatch her, snatch her bald-headed with thy sword. If trembling I inhabit, then lay in the leads. No, only the starboard one. Leave the other alone. Protest me, the baby of a girl. Hence horrible shadow. Eight bells, that watchman's asleep again, I reckon. Go down and call Brown yourself. Unreal mockery, hence. He was certainly a good reader and splendidly thrilling and stormy and tragic, but it was a damage to me because I've never since been able to read Shakespeare in a calm and sane way. I cannot rid it of his explosive interlardings. They break in everywhere with their irrelevant, quote, what in the hell are you up to now? Pull her down. More, more. There now, steady as you go, unquote. And other disorganizing interruptions that were always leaping from his mouth. When I read Shakespeare now, I can hear them as plainly as I did in that long-departed time 51 years ago. I never regarded Ehler's readings as educational. Indeed, they were a detriment to me. His contributions to the text seldom, seldom improved it, but barring that detail, he was a good reader. I can say that much for him. He did not use the book and did not need to. He knew his Shakespeare as well as Euclid ever knew his multiplication table. Did he have something to say, this Shakespeare-adoring Mississippi pilot? Annette Delia Bacon's book? Yes. And he said it. He said it all the time, for months, in the morning watch, the middle watch, the dog watch, and probably kept it going in his sleep. He bought the literature of the dispute as fast as it appeared, and we discussed it all through 1,300 miles of, four, of river, four times traversed in every 35 days, the time required by that swift boat to achieve two round trips. We discussed and discussed and discussed, and disputed and disputed and disputed, at any rate, he did, and I got in a word now and then, when he slipped a cog and there was a vacancy. He did his arguing with heat, with energy, with violence. I did mine with the reserve and moderation of a subordinate who does not like to be flung out of a pilot house that is perched 40 feet above the water. He was fiercely loyal to Shakespeare and cordially scornful of Bacon and all, the, all of the pretensions of the Baconians. So was I at first. And at first he was glad that that was my attitude. There were even indications that he admired it. Indications dimmed, it is true, by the distance that lay between the lofty boss pilotical altitude and my lonely one, yet perceptible to me, perceptible and translatable into a compliment, compliment coming down from above the snow line and not well thawed in the transit and not likely to set anything afire, not even a cub pilot's self-conceit, 
still a detectable compliment and precious. Naturally, it flattered me into being more loyal to Shakespeare, if possible, than I was before, and more prejudiced against Bacon, if possible, than I was before. So we discussed and discussed, both on the same side, and were happy for a while. Only for a while. Only for a very little while. A very, very, very little while. Then the atmosphere began to change, began to cool off. A brighter person would have seen what the trouble was earlier than I did, perhaps. And I saw it early enough for all practical purposes. You see, he was of an argumentative disposition. Therefore, it took him but a little time to get tired of arguing with a person who agreed with everything he said and consequently never furnished him a provocative to flare up and show what he could do when it came to clear, cold, hard, rose-cut, hundred-faceted, diamond-flashing reasoning. That was his name for it. It has been applied since with complacency as many as several times in the Bacon-Shakespeare scuffle on the Shakespeare side. Then the thing happened which has happened to more persons than to me when principal and personal interests found themselves in opposition to each other and a choice had to be made. I let principal go and went over to the other side. Not the entire way, but far enough to answer the requirements of the case. That is to say, I took this attitude to wit. I only believed Bacon wrote Shakespeare, whereas I knew Shakespeare didn't. Either was satisfied with that and the war broke loose. Study, practice, experience in handling my end of the matter presently enabled me to take my new position almost seriously. A little bit later, utterly seriously. A little later still, lovingly, gratefully, devotedly, finally, fiercely, rabidly, uncompromisingly. After that, I was welded to my faith. I was theoretically ready to die for it. And I looked down with compassion, not unmixed with scorn, upon everybody else's faith that didn't tally with mine. That faith, imposed upon me by self-interest in that ancient day, remains my faith today. And in it, I find comfort, solace, peace, and never failing joy. You see how curiously theog theological it is? The rice Christian of the Orient goes through the very same steps. When he's after rice and the missionary is after him, he goes for rice and remains to worship. Euler did a lot of our reasoning, not to say substantially all of it. The slaves of his cult have a passion for calling it by that large name. We others do not call our inductions and deductions and reductions by any name at all. They show for themselves what they are, and we can with tranquil confidence leave the world and to ennoble them with the title of its own choosing. Now and then when either had to stop to cough, I pulled my induction talents together and hove the controversial lead myself, always getting eight feet, eight and a half, often nine, sometime even a quarter less twain, as I believed, but always no bottom, as he said. I got the best of him only once. I prepared myself. I wrote out a passage from Shakespeare. It may have been the very one I quoted a while ago, I don't remember, and riddled it with his wild, steamboatful interlardings. When an unrisky opportunity offered, one lovely summer day, when we had sounded and buoyed the, a tangled patch of crossings known as Hell's Half Acre, and were aboard again, and he had sneaked the Pennsylvania triumphantly through it without once scraping sand, and the A.T. Lacey had followed in our wake and got stuck, he was feeling good, I showed it to him. It amused him. I asked him to fire it off. Read it. Read it. I diplomatically added, as only he could read it, dramatic poetry. The compliment touched him where he lived. He did read it. Read it with surpassing fire and spirit. Read it as if it will never be read again, for he knew how to put the right music into those thunderous interlardings and make them seem part of the text, make them sound as if they were bursting from Shakespeare's own soul, each one of them a golden inspiration and not to be left out without damage to the mast and magnificent whole. I waited a week to let the incident fade, waited longer, waited until he brought 
up for reasonings and vituperation, my pet position, my pet argument, the one which I was fondest of, the one which I prized far above all others in my ammunition wagon, to wit, that Shakespeare couldn't have written Shakespeare's works for the reason that the man who wrote them was limitlessly familiar with the laws, the law courts, the law proceedings, and lawyer talk and lawyer ways, as if Shakespeare was possessed of the infinitely divided stardust that constituted this vast wealth. How did he get it, and where and when? From books. From books. That was always the idea. I answered as my readings of the champions of my side of the great controversy had taught me to answer, that a man can't handle glibly and easily and comfortably and successfully the argot of a trade at which he has not personally served. He will make mistakes. He will not and cannot get the trade phrasings precisely and exactly right. The moment he departs by even a shade from a common trade form, the reader who has served that trade will know the writer hasn't. Ehler would not be convinced. He said a man could learn how to correctly handle the subtleties and mysteries and freemasonries of any trade by careful reading and studying. When I got him to read again the passage from Shakespeare with the interlardings, he perceived himself that books couldn't teach a student a bewildering multitude of pilot phrases so thoroughly and perfectly that he could talk them off in a book and play or conversation and make no mistake that a pilot would not immediately discover. It was a triumph for me. He was silent a while, and I knew what was happening. He was losing his temper, and I knew he would presently close the session with the same old argument that was always his day in his support in time of need. The same old argument, the one I couldn't answer, because I couldn't. The argument that I was an ass and better shut up. He delivered it, and I obeyed. Oh dear, how long ago was it? How pathetically long ago. Here I am, old, forsaken, forlorn, and alone, arranging to get that argument out of somebody again. When a man has a passion for Shakespeare, it goes without saying that he keeps company with other standard authors. Ehler always had several high-class books in the pilot house, and he read the same ones over and over again, and did not care to change to newer and fresher ones. He played well on the flute and greatly enjoyed hearing himself play. So did I. He had a notion that a flute would keep its health better if you took it apart when it was not standing a watch, and so, when it was not on duty, it took its rest disjointed on the compass shelf under the breastboard. When the Pennsylvania blew up and become a drifting rack heap freighted with wounded and dying poor souls, my younger brother Henry among them, Pilot Brown had the watch below and was probably asleep and never knew what killed him, but Ehler escaped unhurt. He and his pilot house were shot up into the air, then they fell, and Ehler sank through the ragged cavern where the hurricane deck and the boiler deck had been and landed in a nest of ruins on the main deck on top of one of the unexploited boilers, where he lay prone in a fog of scalding and deadly steam, but not for long. He did not lose his head. Long familiarity with danger had taught him to keep it in any and all emergencies. He held his coat lapels to his nose with one hand to keep out the steam, and scrabbled around with the other till he found the joints of his flute. Then he took, he is took measures to save himself alive and was successful. I was not on board. I had been put ashore in New Orleans by Captain Kleinfelter. The reason, however, I have told all about it in the book called Old Times on the Mississippi is it isn't important anyway. It is so long ago. Chapter 2 When I was a Sunday school scholar something more than 60 years ago, I became interested in Satan and wanted to find out all I could about him. I began to ask questions, but my class teacher, Miss Barkley, the stonemason, was reluctant about answering them, it seemed to me. 
I was anxious to be praised for turning my thoughts to serious subjects when there wasn't another boy in the village who could be hired to do such a thing. I was greatly interested in the incident of Eve and the serpent, although Eve's calmness was perfectly noble. I asked Mr. Barkley if he had ever heard of another woman who, being approached by a serpent, would not excuse herself and break for the nearest timber. He did not answer my question, but rebuked me for inquiring into matters above my age and comprehension. I will say for Mr. Barkley that he was willing to tell me the facts of Satan's history, but he stopped there. He wouldn't allow any discussion of them. In the course of time, we exhausted the facts. There were only five or six of them. You could set them all down on a visiting card. I was disappointed. I had been meditating a biography and was grieved to find that there was no such materials. I said as much with the tears running down. Mr. Barclay's sympathy and compassion were aroused, for he was a most kind and gentle-spirited man, and he patted me on the head and cheered me up by saying there was a whole vast ocean of materials. I can still feel the happy thrill which these blessed words shot through me. Then he began to bail out that ocean's riches for my encouragement and joy. Like this, it was conjectured, though not established, that Satan was originally an angel in heaven, that he fell, that he rebelled, and brought on a war, that he was defeated and banished to perdition. Also, we have reason to believe that later he did so and so, that we are warranted in supposing that at a subsequent time he traveled extensively, seeking whom he might devour, that a couple of centuries afterward, as tradition instructs us, he took up the cruel trade of tempting people to their ruin with vast and fearful results, that by day, that by and by, as the probabilities seem to indicate, he may have done certain things, he might have done certain other things, he must have done still other things. And so on and so on. We set down the five known facts by themselves on a piece of paper, and I numbered it page one. Then on 1,500 other pieces of paper, we set down the conjectures, the suppositions, and maybes, and perhapses, and doubtlesses, and rumors, and guesses, and probabilities, and likelihoods, and we are permitted to thinks, and we are warranted in believing, and might have beens, and could have beens, and must have beens, and unquestionablys, and without a shadow of doubts. And behold, materials. Why, we had enough to build a biography of Shakespeare. Yet he made me put away my pen. He would not let me write the history of Satan. Why? Because, as he said, he had suspicions. Suspicions that my attitude in this matter was not reverent. That a person must be reverent when writing about the sacred characters. He said of one who spoke flippantly of Satan would be frowned upon by the religious world and also be brought into account. I assured him in earnest and sincere words that he had wholly misconceived my attitude that I had the highest respect for Satan, and that my reverence for him equaled and possibly even exceeded that of any member of any church. I said it wounded me deeply to perceive by his words that he thought I would make fun of Satan and deride him, laugh at him, scoff at him, whereas in truth I had never thought of such a thing, but had only a warm desire to make fun of those others who laugh at them. What others? Why, the supposers, the perhapsers, the might-have-beeners, the could-have-beeners, the must-have-beeners, and without a shadow of doubters, and we are warranted in believingers that all funny crops of solemn architects who have taken a good solid foundation of five indisputable and unimportant facts and built upon it a conjectural Satan 30 miles high. What did Mr. Barclay do then? Was he disarmed? Was he silenced? No, he was shocked. He was so shocked that he visibly shuddered. He said the satanic traditioners and perhapsers and conjecturers were themselves sacred, as sacred as their work so sacred that whoso ventured to mock them or make fun of their work could not afterward enter into any respectable house, even by the back door. How true were his words and how wise. How fortunate it would have been for me if I had heeded them. But I was young, I was but seven years of age, 
and vain, foolish, and anxious to attract attention. I wrote the biography and never have never been in a respectable house since. How curious, chapter three, how curious and interesting is the parallel as far as poverty of biographical details is concerned between Satan and Shakespeare. It is wonderful. It is unique. It stands quite alone. There is nothing resembling it in history, nothing resembling it in romance, nothing approaching it even in tradition. How sublime is their position and how overtopping, how sky-reaching, how supreme. Two great unknowns, the two illustrious conjecture abilities. They are the best unknown, unknown persons that have ever drawn breath upon the planet. For the instruction of the ignorant, I will make a list now of those details of Shakespeare's history, which are facts, verified facts, established facts, undisputed facts, facts. He was born on the 23rd of April, 1564, of a good farmer class parents who could not read, could not write, could not sign their names. At Stratford, a small back settlement, which in that day was shabby and unclean and densely illiterate. Of the 19 important men charged with the government of the town, 13 had to make their mark in attesting important documents because they could not write their names. Of the first 18 years of his life, nothing is known. They are a blank. On the 27th of November, 1582, William Shakespeare took out a license to marry Anne Wheat Watley. The next day, William Shakespeare took out a license to marry Anne Hathaway. She was eight years his senior. William Shakespeare married Anne Hathaway in a hurry. By grace of a reluctantly granted dispensation, there was what but one publication of the bands. Within six months, the first child was born. About two years followed, during which period nothing happened to Shakespeare at all, so far as anybody knows. Then came twins, 1585, February. Two blank years follow. Then 1587, he makes a 10-year visit to London, leaving the family be behind. Five blank years follow. During this period, nothing happened to him, as far as anybody actually knows. Then, in 1592, there is mention of him as an actor. Next year, 1593, his name appears in the official list of players. Next year, 1594, he played before the Queen. A detail of no consequence. Other obscurities did it every year of the 45 of her reign, and remained obscure. Three pretty full years follow, full of play acting. Then, in 1597, he bought New Place, Stratford. Thirteen or fourteen busy years follow, years in which he accumulated money and also reputation as actor and manager. Meantime, his name, liberally and variously spelt, had become associated with a number of great plays and poems as ostensibly author of the same. Some of these, in these years and later, were pirated, but he made no protest. Then, 1610-11, he returned to Stratford and settled down for good and all, and busied himself in lending money, trading in tithes, trading in land and houses, shirking a debt of 41 shillings, borrowed by his wife during his long desertion of his family, suing debtors for shillings and coppers, being sued himself for shillings and coppers, and acting as confederate to a neighbor who tried to rob the town of its rights in a certain common and did not succeed. He lived five or six years till 1616 in the joy of these elevated pursuits. Then he made a will and signed each of its three pages with his name. A thoroughgoing businessman's will. It named in minute detail every item of property he owned in the world, houses, lands, sword, silver, gilt bowl, and so on, all the way down to his second best bed and its furniture. It, it carefully and calculatingly distributed his riches among the members of his family, overlooking no individual of it, not even his wife. His wife he had been enabled to marry in a hurry by urgent grace of a special dispensation before he was 19. 
the wife whom he had left husbandless so many years, the wife who still had to borrow 41 shillings in her need, in which the lender was never able to collect uh, off the prosperous husband, but died at last with the money still lacking. No, even this wife was remembered in Shakespeare's will. He left her that second bed best, second best bed, and not another thing, not even a penny to bless her lucky widowhood with. It was eminently and conspicuously a businessman's will, not a poet's. It mentioned not a single book. Books were much more precious than swords and silver gilt bowls and second best beds in those days. When a departing person owned one, he gave it a high place in his will. The will mentioned not a play, not a poem, not an unfinished literary work, not a scrap or a manuscript of any kind. Many poets have died poor, but this is the only one in history that has died this poor. The others all left literary remains behind, also a book or maybe two. If Shakespeare had owned a dog, but we need not go into that, we know he would have mentioned it in his will. If a good dog, Susanna would have got it. If an inferior one, his wife would have got a dower to interest in it. I wish he had had a dog, just so we could see how painstakingly he would have divided that dog among the family in his careful business way. He signed the will in three places. In earlier years, he signed two other official documents. These five signatures still exist. There are no other specimens of his penmanship in existence, not a line. Was he prejudiced against the art? His granddaughter, whom he loved, was eight years old when he died. Yet she had no had had no teaching. He left no provision for her education, although he was rich. And in her mature womanhood, she couldn't write and couldn't tell her husband's manuscript from anybody else's. She thought it was Shakespeare's. When Shakespeare died in Stratford, it was not an event. It made no more stir in England than the death of any other forgotten theater actor would have made. Nobody came down from London. There were no lamenting poems, no eulogies, no national tears. There was merely silence and nothing more. A striking contrast with what happened when Ben Jonson and Francis Bacon and Spencer and Raleigh and the other distinguished literary folk from Shakespeare's time passed from life. No praiseful voice was lifted for the lost bard of Avon. Even Ben Jonson waited seven years before he lifted his. As far as anybody actually knows and can prove, Shakespeare of Stratford-on-Avon never wrote a play in his life. So far as anybody knows and can prove, he never wrote a letter to anybody in his life. So far as anyone knows, he received only one letter during his life. So far as anyone knows and can prove, Shakespeare of Stratford wrote only one poem during his life. This one is authentic. He did write that one, a fact which stands undisputed. He wrote the whole of it. He wrote the whole of it out of his own head. He commanded that this work of art be engraved upon his tomb, and he was obeyed. There it abides to this day. This is it. Quote, Good friend, for Jesus' sake forbear, to dig the dust enclosed here. Blessed be ye, man, why it spares these stones, and cursed be he who moves my bones. In the list as, in the list as above set down will be found every positively known fact of Shakespeare's life, lean and meager as the invoice is. Beyond these details, we know not a thing about him. All the rest of his vast history, as furnished by the biographers, is built up, course upon course, guesses of guesses, inferences, theories, and conjectures, an Eiffel Tower of artificialities rising sky-high from a very flat and very thin foundation of inconsequential facts. Chapter 4, Conjectures The historians suppose that Shakespeare attended the free school in Stratford from the time he was seven years old till he was 13. There is no evidence in existence that he ever went to school at all. Historians infer that he got his Latin in that school, the school which they suppose he attended. 
They supposed his father's declining fortunes made it necessary for him to leave the school they supposed he attended and get to work and help support his parents and their 10 children. But there's no evidence that he ever entered or retired from the school they supposed he attended. They supposed he assisted his father in the butchering business, and that, being only a boy, he didn't have to do full-grown butchering, but only slaughtered calves. Also, that whenever he killed a calf, he made a high-flown speech over it. This supposition rests upon the testimony of a man who wasn't there at the time, a man who got it from a man who could have been there, but did not say whether he was or not, and neither of them thought to mention it for decades and decades and decades, and two more decades after Shakespeare's death, until old age and mental decay had refreshed and vivified their memories. They hadn't two facts in stock about the long-dead distinguished citizen, but only just the one. He slaughtered calves and broke into oratory while he was at it. Curious. They only had one fact, yet the distinguished citizen had spent 26 years in that little town, just half his lifetime. However, rightly viewed, it was the most important fact, indeed almost the only important fact, of Shakespeare's life in Stratford. Rightly viewed, for experience is an author's most valuable asset. Experience is the thing that puts the muscle and the breath and the warm blood into the book he writes. Rightly viewed, calf butchering accounts for Titus Andronicus, the only play, ain't it, that the Stratford Shakespeare ever wrote. Yet it is the only one everybody tries to chouse him out of, the Baconians included. The historians find themselves justified in believing that the young Shakespeare poached upon Sir Thomas Lucy's deer preserves and got hailed before that magistrate for it. But there is no shred of respect-worthy evidence of anything of the kind happened. The historians, having argued the thing that might have happened into the thing that did happen, found no trouble in turning Sir Thomas Lucy into Mr. Justice Shallow. They have long ago convinced the world, on surmise and without trustworthy evidence, that Shallow is Sir Thomas. In addition to the young Shakespeare's Stratford history comes easy. The historian builds it out of the surmised deer stealing, and the surmised trial before the magistrate, and the surmised vengeance prompted satire upon the magistrate in the play. Result, the young Shakespeare was a wild, 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 oh, such a wild young scamp, and that gratuitous slander is established for all time. It is the very way Professor Osborne and I built the colossal skeleton brontosaur that stands 57 feet long and 16 feet high in the Natural History Museum, the awe and admiration of all the world, the stateliest skeleton that exists on the planet. We had nine bones, and we built the rest of him out of plaster of Paris. We ran short of plaster of Paris, or we'd have built a brontosaur that could sit down beside the Stratford Shakespeare, and none but an expert could tell which was biggest or contained the most plaster. Shakespeare pronounced Venus and Adonis the first heir of his invention, apparently implying that it was his first effort at literary composition. He should not have said it. It has been an embarrassment to his historians these many, many years. They have to make him write that graceful and polished and flawless and beautiful poem before he escaped from Stratford and his family, 1586 or 7, age 22 or along there, because within the next five years he wrote five great plays and could not have found time to write another line. It is sorely embarrassing. If he began to slaughter calves and poach deer and rollick around and learn English, at the earliest likely moment, say at 13, when he was supposedly wrenched from that school where he was supposedly storing up Latin for future literary use, he had his useful hands full and much more than full. He must have had to put aside his Warwickshire act dialect, which wouldn't be understood in London, and study English very hard, very hard indeed incredibly hard, almost, if the result of that labor was to be the smooth and rounded and flexible and letter-perfect English of the Venus and Adonis in the space of ten years. 
and at the same time learn great and fine and unsurpassable literary form. However, it is conjectured that he accomplished all this and more, much more, learned law and its intricacies and the complex procedure of the law courts and all about soldiering and sailoring and the manners and customs and ways of royal courts and aristocratic society, and likewise accumulated in his one head every kind of knowledge the learned then possessed, and every kind of humble knowledge possessed by the lowly and the ignorant, and added thereto a wider and more intimate knowledge of the world's great literatures, ancient and modern, than was possessed by any other man of his time, for he was going to make brilliant and easy and admiration-compelling use of these splendid treasures the moment he got to London. And according to the surmisers, that is what he did. Yes, although there was no one in Stratford able to teach him these things, and no library in the little village to dig them out of, his father could not read, and even the surmisers surmise that he did not keep a library. It is surmised by the biographers that the young Shakespeare got his vast knowledge of the law and his familiar and accurate acquaintance with the manners and customs and shop talk of lawyers through being, for a time, the clerk of a Stratford court. Just as a bright lad like me, reared in a village on the banks of the Mississippi, might become perfect in knowledge of the Bering Strait whale fishery and the shop talk of the veteran exercisers of that adventure-bristling trade through catching catfish with a trot line Sundays. But the surmise is damaged by the fact that there is no evidence, not even tradition, that the young Shakespeare was ever clerk of a law court. It is further surmised that the young Shakespeare accumulated his law treasures in the first years of his sojourn in London, through amusing himself by learning book law in his garret and by picking up lawyer talk and the rest of it through loitering and about the loitering about the law courts and listening. But it is only surmise. There is no evidence that he ever did either of those things. They are merely a couple of chunks of plaster of Paris. There is a legend that he got his bread and butter by holding horses in front of the London theaters mornings and afternoons. Maybe he did. If he did, it seriously shortened his law study hours and his recreation time in the courts. For those very days, he was writing great plays and needed all the time he could get. The horse-holding legend ought to be strangled. It too formidably increases the historian's difficulty in accounting for the young Shakespeare's erudition, an erudition which he was acquiring hunk by hunk and chunk by chunk every day in those strenuous times, and emptying each day's catch into next day's imperishable drama. He had to acquire a knowledge of war at the same time, and a knowledge of soldier people and sailor people and their ways and talk, also a knowledge of some foreign lands and their languages, for he was daily emptying fluent streams of these various knowledges, too, into his dramas. How did he acquire these rich assets? In the usual way, by surmise. It is surmised that he traveled in Italy and Germany and around, and qualified himself to put their scenic and social aspects upon paper, that he perfected himself in French, Italian, and Spanish on the road, that he went in Leicester's expedition to the Low Countries as soldier or sutler or something for several months or years, or whatever length of time a surmiser needs in his business, and thus became familiar with soldiership and soldier ways and soldier talk, and generalship and general ways and general talk, and seamanship and sailor ways and sailor talk. Maybe he did all these things, but I would like to know who held the horses in the meantime, who studied the books in the garret, who frolicked in the law courts for recreation, also who did the callboying and the play acting. For he became a callboy. As early as 93, he became a vagabond, the law's ungentle term for an unlisted actor, and in 94, a regular and properly and officially listed member of that, in those days, lightly valued and not much respected profession. 
Right soon thereafter, he became a stockholder in two theaters and manager of them. Thenceforward, he was a busy and flourishing businessman and was raking in money with both hands for 20 years. Then, in a noble frenzy of poetic inspiration, he wrote his one poem, his only poem, his darling, and laid him down and died. Quote, Good friend, for Jesus' sake forbear to dig the dust enclosed here. Blessed ye be, man, yet spares these stones, and cursed be he, yet moves my bones. He was probably dead when he wrote it. Still, this is only conjecture. We have only circumstantial evidence, internal evidence. Shall I set down the rest of the conjectures which constitute a giant biography of William Shakespeare? It would strain the unabridged dictionary to hold them. He is a brontosaur, nine bones and 600 barrels of plaster of Paris. Chapter five, we may assume. In the assuming trade, three separate and independent cults are transacting business. Two of these cults are known as the Shakespeareites and the Baconians, and I am the other one, the Brontosaurian. The Shakespeareite knows that Shakespeare wrote Shakespeare's works. The Bacon knows that Francis Bacon wrote them. The Brontosaurian doesn't really know which of them did it, but is quite composedly and contentedly sure that Shakespeare didn't, and strongly suspects that Bacon did. We all have to do a great deal of assuming, but I am fairly certain that in every case, I can call to mind the Baconian assumers have come out ahead of the Shakespeareites. Both parties handle the same materials, but the Baconians seem to me to get much more reasonable and rational and persuasive results out of them, which is the case with the Shakespeareites. The Shakespeareite conducts his assuming upon a definite principle, an unchanging and immutable law, which is 2 and 8 and 7 and 14 added together make 165. I believe this to be an error. No matter, you cannot get a habit sought in Shakespeareite to cipher up his materials upon any other basis. With the Baconian, it is different. If you place before him the above figures and set him to adding them up, he will never in any case get more than 45 out of them, and in nine cases out of 10, he will get just the proper 31. Let me try to illustrate the two systems in a simple and homely way calculated to bring the idea within the grasp of the ignorant and unintelligent. We will suppose a case. Take a lap of bread, house-fed, uneducated, inexperienced kitten. Take a rugged, rugged old tom that's scarred from stem to rudder post with the memorials of strenuous experience and is so cultured, so educated, so limitlessly erudite that one may say of him, all cat knowledge is his province. Also take a mouse. Lock the three up in a holeless, crackless, exitless prison cell. Wait half an hour, then open the cell. Introduce a Shakespeareite and a Baconian and let them cipher and assume. The mouse is missing. The question to be decided is, where is it? You can guess both verdicts beforehand. One verdict will say the kitten contains the mouse. The other will as certainly say the mouse is in the tomcat. The Shakespeareite will reason like this. This is not my word. It is his. He will say the kitten may have been attending school when nobody was noticing. Therefore, we are warranted in assuming that it did so. Also, it could have been training in a court's clerk office when no one, no one was noticing. Since that could have happened, we are justified in assuming that it did happen. It could have studied catology in a garret when no one was noticing. Therefore, it did. It could have attended cat assizes on the shed roof nights for recreation when no one was noticing and harvested a knowledge of cat court forms and cat lawyer talk in that way. It could have done it. Therefore, without a doubt, it did. It could have gone soldiering with a war tribe when no one was noticing and learned social wa soldier wiles and soldier ways and what to do with the mouse when opportunity offers. The plain inference, therefore, is that is what it did. Since all these manifold things could have occurred, we have every right to believe they did occur. These patiently and painstakingly accumulated vast acquirements and competences needed but one thing more, 
an opportunity to convert themselves into triumphant action. The opportunity came, we have the result. Beyond shadow of question, the mouse is in the kitten. It is proper to remark that when we of the three cults plant a, we think we may assume, we expect it under careful watering and fertilizing and tending to grow up into a strong and hardy and weather-defying, there isn't a shadow of a doubt at last, and it usually happens. We know what the Baconian's verdict would be. Quote, there is not a rag of evidence that the kitten has had any training, any education, any experience qualifying it for the present occasion, or is indeed equipped for any achievement above lifting such unclaimed milk as comes its way. But there is abundant evidence, unassailable proof, in fact, that the other animal is equipped to the last detail with every qualification necessary for the event. Without shadow of doubt, the tomcat contains the mouse, unquote. Chapter 6. When Shakespeare died in 1616, great literary productions attributed to him as author had been before the London world and in high favor for 24 years. Yet his death was not an event. It made no stir. It attracted no attention. Apparently, his eminent literary contemporaries did not realize that a celebrated poet had passed from their midst. Perhaps they knew a play actor of minor rank had disappeared, but did not regard him as the author of his works. We are justified in assuming this. His death was not even an event, an event in the little town of Stratford. Does this mean that Stratford, that in Stratford he was not regarded as a celebrity of any kind? We are privileged to assume, no, we are indeed obliged to assume that such was the case. He had spent the first 22 or 23 years of his life there, and of course knew everybody and was known by everybody of that day in the town, including the dogs and the cats and the horses. He had spent the last five or six years of his life there, diligently trading in every big and little thing that had money in it. So we are compelled to assume that many of the folk there in those said latter days knew him personally, and the rest by sight and hearsay. But not as a celebrity? Apparently not. For everybody soon forgot to remember any contact with him or any incident connected with him. The dozens of townspeople still alive who had known of him and known about him in the first 23 years of his life were in the same unremembering condition. If they knew of any incident connected with that period of his life, they didn't tell about it. Would they, if they had been asked? It is most likely. Were they asked? It is pretty apparent that they were not. Why weren't they? It is a very plausible guess that nobody there or elsewhere was interested to know. For seven years after Shakespeare's death, nobody seems to have been interested in him. Then the quarto was published, and Ben Jonson awoke out of his long indifference and sang a song of praise and put it in the front of the book. Then silence fell again for 60 years. Then inquiries into Shakespeare's Stratford life began to be made of Stratfordians. Of Stratfordians who had known Shakespeare or had seen him? No. Then of Stratfordians who had seen people who had known or seen people who had seen Shakespeare? No. Apparently the inquiries were only made of Stratfordians who were not Stratfordians of Shakespeare's day, but late, later comers. And what they had learned had come from to them from persons who had not seen Shakespeare. And what they had learned was not claimed as fact, but only as legend. Dim and fading in indefinite legend. Legend of the calf slaughtering rank, and not worth remembering either as history or fiction. Has it ever happened before or since that a celebrated person who spent exactly half of a fairly long life in the village where he was born and reared was able to slip out of this world and leave the village voiceless and gossipless behind him, utterly voiceless and utterly gossipless, and permanently so? I don't believe that it has happened in any case except, except Shakespeare's, and couldn't and wouldn't have happened in this case if he had been regarded as a celebrity at the time of his death. 
when I examine my own case, but let's, let us do that and see if it will not be recognizable as exhibiting a condition of things quite likely to result. <coughs> when I examine my own case, but let us do that and see if it will not be recognizable as exhibiting a condition of things quite likely to result, most likely to result, indeed substantially sure to result, in the case of a celebrated person, a benefactor of the human race, like me. My parents, parents brought me to the village of Hannibal, Missouri, on the banks of the Mississippi, when I was two and a half years old. I entered school at five years of age and drifted from one school to another in the village during nine and a half years. Then my father died, leaving his family in exceedingly straitened circumstances. Wherefore, my book education came to a standstill forever, and I became a printer's apprentice on board and clothes, and when the clothes failed, I got a hymn book in place of them. This was for summer wear, I probably. I lived in Hannibal 15 and a half years altogether, then ran away according to the custom of persons who are intending to become celebrated. I never lived there afterward. Four years later, I became a cub on a Mississippi steamboat in the St. Louis and New Orleans trade. And after a year and a half of hard study and hard work, the U.S. inspectors rigorously examined me through a couple long sittings and decided I knew every inch of the Mississippi, 1,300 miles, in the dark and in the day, as well as a baby knows the way to its mother's paps day or night. So they licensed me as a pilot, knighted me, so to speak, and I rose up clothed with authority, a responsible servant of the United States government. Now then, Shakespeare died young. He was only 52. He had lived in his native village 26 years or about that. He died celebrated if you believe everything you read in the books. Yet when he died, nobody there or elsewhere took any notice of it. And for 60 years afterward, no townsman remembered to say anything about him or his life in Stratford. When the inquirer came, at last he got but one fact, no legend, and got that one at second hand from a person who had only heard it as a rumor and didn't claim copyright in it as a production of his own. He couldn't very well for its date antedated his own birth date. But necessarily a number of persons were still alive in Stratford in the days of their youth and had seen Shakespeare nearly every day in the last five years of his life, and they would have been able to tell that inquirer some firsthand things about him if he had in those last days been a celebrity and therefore a person of interest to the villagers. Why did not the inquirer hunt them up and interview them? Wasn't it worthwhile? Wasn't the matter of sufficient consequence? Had the inquirer an engagement to see a dogfight and couldn't spare the time? It all seems to mean that he never had any literary celebrity there or elsewhere and no considerable repute as actor and manager. Now then, I am away along in life, my 73rd year being already well behind me, yet 16 of my Hannibal schoolmates are still alive today, and can tell, and do tell, inquires dozens and dozens of incidents of their young lives and mine together, things that happen to us in the morning of life, in the blossom of our youth, in the good days, the dear days, the days when we spent gypsying a long time ago. Most of them creditable to me, too. One child to whom I paid court when she was five years old and I ate still lives in Hannibal, Hannibal, and she visited me last summer, traversing the necessary 10 or 1,200 miles of railroad without damage to her patience or to her old young vigor. Another little lassie to whom I paid attention in Hannibal when she was nine years old and I the same is still alive in London and hale and hearty just as I am. And on the few surviving steamboats whose lingering ghosts and remembrancers of great fleets that plied the big river in the beginning of my water career, which is exactly as long ago as the whole invoice of the life years of Shakespeare number, 
there are still findable two or three river pilots who saw me do creditable things in those ancient days, and several white-headed engineers, and several roustabouts and mates, and several deckhands who used to heave the lead for me and send up on the still night air the six feet scant that made me shudder, and the Mark Twain that took the shudder away, and presently the darling by the deep four that lifted me to heaven for joy. They know about me and can tell. So do printers from St. Louis to New York, and so do newspaper reporters from Nevada to San Francisco, and so do the police. If Shakespeare had really been celebrated like me, Stratford could have told things about him, and if my experience goes for anything, they'd have done it. Chapter 7 If I had under my superintendence a controversy appointed to decide whether Shakespeare wrote Shakespeare or not, I believe I would place before the debaters the only one question. Was Shakespeare ever a practicing lawyer? and leave everything else out. It is maintained that the man who wrote the plays was not merely myriad-minded, but also myriad-accomplished, that he not only knew some thousands of things about human life and all its shades and grades, and about the hundred arts and trades and crafts and professions which men, which men busy themselves in, but that he could talk about the men, their grades, and their trades accurately, making no mistakes. Maybe it is so, but have the experts spoken, or is it only Tom, Dick, and Harry? Does the exhibit stand upon wide and loose and eloquent generalizing, which is not evidence and not proof, or upon details, particulars, statistics, illustrations, demonstrations? Experts of unchallenged authority have testified definitely as to only one of Shakespeare's multifarious craft equipments, so far as my recollections of Shakespeare, Bacon, talk, abide with me, his law equipment. I do not remember that Wellington or Napoleon ever examined Shakespeare's battles and sieges and strategies, and then decided and established for good and all that they were militarily flawless. I do not remember that any Nelson or Drake or Cook ever examined his seamanship and said it showed profound and accurate familiarity with that art. I don't remember that any king or prince or duke has ever testified that Shakespeare was letter perfect in his handling of royal court manners and the talk and manners of aristocracies. I don't remember that any illustrious Latinist or Grecian or Frenchman or Spaniard or Italian has proclaimed him a past master of those languages. I don't remember, I will, I don't remember that there is testimony, great testimony, imposing testimony, unanswerable and unattackable testimony as to any of Shakespeare's hundred specialties except one, the law. Other things change with time, and the student cannot trace back with certainty the changes that various trades and their processes and technicalities have undergone in the long stretch of a century or two, and find out what their processes and technicalities were in those early days. But with the law, it is different. It is milestoned and documented all the way back. And the master of that wonderful trade, that complex and intricate trade, that awe-compelling trade, has competent ways of knowing whether Shakespeare law is good law or not, and whether his law court procedure is correct or not, and whether his legal shop talk is the shop talk of a veteran practitioner or only a machine made counterfeit of it gathered from books and from occasional loiterings in Westminster. Richard H. Dana served two years before the mast and had every experience that falls to the lot of the sailor before the mast of our day. His sailor talk flows from his pen with the sure touch and ease and confidence of a person who has lived what he is talking about, not gathered it from books and random listenings. Hear him. Quote, having hove short, cast off the gaskets, and made the bunt of each sail fast by the jigger, with a man on each yard, at the word, the whole canvas of the ship was loosed, and with the greatest rapidity possible, everything was sheeted home and hoisted up, the anchor tripped and cat-headed, and the ship under headway, unquote. Again, quote, 
The royal yards were all crossed at once, the royals and the sky sails set, and as we had the wind free, the booms were run out, and we were aloft, active as cats, laying out on the yards and booms, re reaving the studding sail gear, and sail after sail the captain plied up, piled upon her until she was covered with canvas, her sails looking like a great white cloud resting upon a black speck, unquote. Once more, a race in the Pacific, quote, our antagonist was in her best trim. Being clear of the point, the breeze became stiff, and the royal masts bent under our sails, and we would not take them in until we saw three boys spring into the rigging of the California. Then they were all furled at once, but with orders to our boys to stay aloft at the top gallant mastheads and loose them again at the word. It was my duty to furl the four royal, and while standing by to loose it again, I had a fine view of the scene. From where I stood, the two vessels seemed nothing but spars and sails with their narrow decks. Far below, slanting over by the force of the wind aloft, appeared hardly capable of supporting the great fabrics raised upon them. The California was windward of us, and at every advantage, yet, while the breeze was stiff, we held our own, and as soon as it began to slacken, she ranged a little ahead, and the order was given to loose the royals. In an instant, the gaskets were off and the bunt dropped. Sheet home the four royal, weather sheets home. Lee sheets home. Hoist away, sir, is bald from aloft. Overhaul your clue lines, shouts the mate. Aye, aye, sir, all clear. Taut leech, belay. Well, the lee braced. Haul taut to windward, and the royals are set, unquote. What would the captain of any sailing vessel of our time say to that? He would say, that man that wrote that didn't learn his trade out of a book, he has been there, unquote. But would this same captain be competent to sit in judgment upon Shakespeare's seamanship, considering the changes in ships and ship talk that have necessarily taken place unrecorded, unremembered, and lost to history in the last 300 years? It is my conviction that Shakespeare's sailor talk would be Choctaw to him. For instance, the Tempest. Master, Boatswain, Boatswain, here, Master, what cheer? Master, good, speak to the Mariners, fall to it, yearly, or we run ourselves to ground, be stir, be stir. Boatswain, hey, my hearts, cheerly, cheerly, my hearts, yer, yer. Take in the topsail, tend to the master's whistle, down with the topmast, yer, lower, lower. Bring her to try with the main course. Lay her a hold, a hold. Set her two courses, off to sea again, lay her off. That will do for the present. Let us yer a little now for a change. If a man should write a book and in it make one of his characters say, quote, here, devil, empty the coins into the standing galley, and the imposing stone into the hell box. Assemble the comps around the frisket and let them jeff for takes and be quick about it, unquote. I should recognize a mistake or two in the phrasing and would know that the writer was only a printer theoretically, not practically. I have been a quartz miner in the silver regions, a pretty hard life. I know all of the palaver of that business. I know all about discovery claims and the subordinate claims. I know all about loads, ledges, outcroppings, dips, spurs, angles, shafts, Drifts, inclines, levels, tunnels, air shafts, horses, clay casings, granite casings, quartz mills and their batteries, arastras and how to charge them with quicksilver and sulfate of copper, and how to clean them up, and how to reduce the resulting amalgam in the retorts, and how to cast the bullion into pigs. And finally, I know how to screen, screen tailings, and also how to hunt for something less robust to do and find it. I know the argot of the quartz mining and milling industry familiarly. And so, whenever Bret Hart introduces that industry into a story. The first time one of his miners opens his mouth, I recognize from his phrasing that Hart got the phrasing by listening, like Shakespeare. I mean the Stratford one, not by experience. 
No one can talk the quartz dialect correctly without learning it with pick and shovel and drill and fuse. I've been a surface miner, gold, and I know all its mysteries and the dialect that belongs with them. And whenever Hart introduces that industry into a story, I know by the phrasing of his characters that neither he nor they have ever served that trade. I have been a pocket miner, a gold, a sort of gold mining not findable in any but one little spot in the world, so far as I know. I know how, with horn and water, to find the trail of a pocket and trace it step by step and stage by stage up the mountain to its source and find the compact little nest of yellow metal reposing in its secret home under the ground. I know the language of that trade, that capricious trade, that fascinating buried treasure trade, and can catch any writer who tries to use it without having learned it by the sweat of his brow and the labor in his hands. I know several other trades in the argot that goes with them, and whenever a person tries to talk the talk peculiar to any of them without having learned it at its source, I can trap him always before he gets far on his road. And so, as I have already remarked, if I were required to superintend a Bacon and Shakespeare controversy, I would narrow the matter down to a single question, the only one, so far as the previous controversies have informed me, concerning which illustrious experts of unimpeachable competency have testified. Was the author of Shakespeare's works a lawyer, a lawyer deeply read and of limited less experience? I would put aside the guesses, the surmises, and perhapses, and might have beens, and could have beens, and must have beens, and we are justified in presumings, and the rest of those vague specters and shadows and indefinitenesses, and stand or fall, win or lose, by the verdict rendered by the jury upon that single question. If the verdict was yes, I should feel quite convinced that the Stratford Shakespeare, the actor, manager, traitor, who died so obscure, so forgotten, so destitute of even village consequence, that 60 years afterward, no fellow citizen and friend of his later days remembered to tell anything about him, did not write the works. Chapter 8 of the Shakespeare problem restated bears the heading, Shakespeare as Lawyer, and comprises some 50 pages of expert testimony with comments thereon, and I will copy the first nine as being sufficient all by themselves, it seems to me, to settle the question which I have conceived to be the master key to the Shakespeare-Bacon puzzle. <laughs>